Hi, welcome to Silent Generation. Today's topic for the podcast is interwar modernism. We were inspired to talk about this one by an Instagram page just called Interwar Modernism. We think this is a really interesting period in between like the earlier kind of traditional building styles of the 1800s and then what became the like steel and glass skyscrapers and modernism that we all live around nowadays. Um, I think it's kind of a looked over period, but I think that it has a lot of like really good things that are lost later on. So we're gonna run through what defines the style, what it looks like. We've attached our Pinterest board where you can see stuff that we've added um, that looks, you know, interwar modernist. Yeah, and so I think this aesthetic falls within this sweet spot where when you think about expressionism, which for many people is their favorite art genre, it's sort of like when people had the technical capability to make things with as much detail and craftsmanship as imaginable, but then they decided to start to make things more abstracted or minimal. And just that little bit of abstraction, people really enjoy it. Art Deco, I think, seems to be the most popular architectural style, yeah. ideally. Mm -hmm. People aren't building an Art Deco, but people still really like yeah. it. And Art Deco doesn't fall quite within this, but it still has that capability where mm -hmm. if people started to reference interwar modernism more, there's a lot that I think the general public could enjoy if people started to use this as inspiration again. Yeah. They do this poll of like the most beloved buildings in America, and the Empire State Building is always at the top of it. I think that's because it has like three things. It has like Americanness, it has height, and it has Art Deco, is I think what makes people love it so much. Yeah, it's a very beloved thing, but in terms of people not building Art Deco stuff nowadays, being from Las Vegas, there's this performing arts center that they built back in the mid 2000s, mid 2010s. They started in the early 2010s. Um, but it's very Art Deco, and I wrote this all into like, in the 2010s there was kind of an Art Deco revival. I think either because of the great Gatsby, Baz Luhrmann movie, <laughs> or just the cultural forces around it, but like there were speakeasies and yeah, people were building Art Deco revival stuff. But yeah, so architectural stuff before interwar modernism would be Art Nouveau. So this was uh, in the 1880s and 90s, this was very ornamental, it was very free-flowing, inspired by organic forms and flowers. What's interesting about all these periods is they are all after like what you could call the start of the Industrial Revolution. And this kind of makes sense that like as things were industrializing, we were becoming more detached from nature and pastoral, provincial, agricultural forms of living, uh, we'd start to kind of want that more and try and like look at ways to bring that into the modern world. Art Nouveau was really inspired by like flatness and abstraction from like Japanese woodblock prints that were finding their way to the West. And yeah, and it was, I guess, centered in Brussels of all places. But, I think of it as being more so like a Spanish style because I've seen a lot of really good mm -hmm. Art Nouveau in like Barcelona and Madrid or just yeah. through pictures. I've never mm -hmm. been to either place. Yeah. There's really great like Art Nouveau illustrations. I find they're like a pretty top, pretty typical like home decoration thing nowadays. People will have like, you know, old uh, alcohol advertisements from this period and they're very like flourishing and they get in that nice middle point where like if you have maybe a transitional kind of style in your apartment, these uh, like advertisements look really good. Um, but even if you have a very like sleek, modern, new build con construction apartment, they also fit and make sense. But yeah. Uh, arts and crafts movement, it's like 1880s to 1920s. This was centered in England more so. I called it like the British take on Art Nouveau. They kind of bemoaned the loss of craftsmanship that was happening during industrialization. When it came to America, 
It was known more as like the American craftsman style, specifically with residential homes. Chicago has a lot of really good examples of these in our like bungalow belt, which is like the outer ring of neighborhoods that are still in the city. Yeah, I grew up in an arts and crafts, um, not a bungalow quite, it was mm -hmm. more of a two flat. Yeah. But I've also heard it described as mission, but it's my preferred aesthetic mm -hmm. of all sort of architectural aesthetics. I am more into metal in terms of like my creative practice. I've mm -hmm. traditionally been more of a metal worker, but I really like dark wood and that's mm -hmm. what's what you find a lot in arts and craft is yeah. like hardwoods that have been stained in super dark colors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have that in your own apartment now. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, which is nice. Yeah, it's, I have yeah if, if you can find like wood trim that hasn't been painted by a landlord, like I think this is where like a neglectful landlord comes in handy. You know, like you have this absentee kind of landlord who wouldn't bother to paint this stuff. So yeah. Yeah, yeah I live in a house from 1893 that's been owned by a single family since the 1980s, I think. Mm -hmm. And my apartment has original wood that the landlord's son redid. He lived on that floor for a bit. And it's really pretty. I'm really lucky to live in it. Sadly, though, I do know a bit about like taking care of wood, but I've lived in it for eight years. And while I could be like this suburb tenant and choose to wax it in my spare time, no, I'm man. also like, no, I... I don't know. There's I other things I want to do with my time. material cost and time, like, yeah. yeah. But I feel like that's kind of what it takes. You need, like, an individual person yeah. who's really invested in a place mm -hmm. to take care of wood like that. Because yeah. her son, I think, knew what it would look like if he made it beautiful, and then he did. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. In, in a lot of our projects that we do at the com company I work at, if we do have very traditional wood trims, we do just paint them white. And I think that is, it can be a very good look. We'll often do um, walls and trim the same color, but the trim will be in a glossier finish and the walls will be in a more matte finish. And I think that that is, yeah, it's kind of erasing some of the details of it, of the trim profiles, but I also think it looks very good. And then it, I don't know, it lets the walls kind of recede into the background and you can focus more on like the beautiful new kitchen that you've built out. Pre-interwar modernist aesthetic would be Art Deco, which we talked about earlier. So this, things shifted into more geometric forms away from the kind of rounded organic forms. But this is, yeah, Empire State Building, carbon and carbide building here in Chicago. It's a beloved one. Lots of like verticality because skyscrapers were um, gaining their foothold in America. Lots of gilding. Yeah. yeah. The Wilshire Theater in Los Angeles is one of my favorite examples. Yeah, yeah LA has like amazing art deco examples. I love like just even a library will be like this art deco temple to learning. Yeah. And so when we actually get into streamlined modern, these are the kind of sub aesthetics that are totally a part of it. So we have like streamlined modern, which I think is pretty well represented in our Pinterest board there. That's where you start to see the like perfectly rounded corners, like semicircular forms. Um, so this yeah. was... I think that within interwar modernism, streamlined modern is easier to identify because mm -hmm. I'm new to this concept. I've actually didn't start out following the interwar modernism Instagram account until a few weeks ago when we started researching for this episode. I have a hard time finding, you know, examples of like Bauhaus or Workbund in Chicago, but I've been able to identify different examples of Streamline Modern and it's just easier to identify and a bit more palatable, I think, just because of that. Yeah. 
It's just those rounded corners is what really gives it away. Also circular windows, like kind of nautical porthole windows. Basically, this was kind of a feedback loop between architecture and industrial design because the streamline comes from like literally streamlining like airflow, basically. The trains and cars of this time were like taking this aesthetic from the very functional idea that you should minimize you know, your drag coefficient of wind passing over what you're building. But then this was <laughs> applied to <laughs> architecture where you know, wind load is not something you need to think about until you're building very, very tall high rises. Yeah, and then so the Deutscher Werkbund was, uh, I have this quote here, less artistic movement, more state-sponsored effort to integrate traditional crafts and industrial mass production. So this was like a, uh, founded in 1907 by the German government of kind of what we touched on earlier with the British arts and crafts thing of like, how do we save our country's strong, like industrial craftsmanship heritage? And then like, how do we keep up in that way? So people from who had worked in this Deutsche Werkbund space uh, with like builders or artisans in this kind of all clumped together and formed an actual formalized school, which was called the Bauhaus. Uh, it was an art school and they would actually build houses, but they had a very strong like program of ceramics and textiles and furniture. They wanted to design everything from the like city planning level uh, down to like what would be found in your kitchen cabinets after. And then um, next we have the international style. So this like emerges directly in between the wars, but this is the like steel and glass or brick and glass sometimes, rectilinear, rectangle windows, stripped of ornamentation. Like this is what becomes modernism, basically. This is what wins. If you of, think yeah. about, if you just envision in your mind a skyscraper from the 70s, you're probably going to imagine something that fits within yeah. that aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So you just went through all the aesthetics within intermodernism. I personally think that the two most prominent are Streamline Modern and the International Style. So one thing that stood out to me about Streamline Modern was that for me, it's like the farthest back I can go and look at an architectural style and think it looks futuristic. Mm-hmm. So when I think about like aesthetics of the future, it's actually kind of a boring aesthetic just because across media, it's like in many different stories that people tell through movies and TV, it'll be like something in sci-fi where they're just exploring like one concept, like, oh, what if people had microchips in their heads or what if there was a pandemic? But then they'll just be like futuristic aesthetics and that's like passed off as being something that's revolutionary when aesthetically we're all used to it. Mm -hmm. But I think that part of the reason why Streamline Modern looks futuristic still is because of its use of chrome, which has been associated with the future for quite a long time. Um, You saw a picture that I included in a slide deck on futurism about, um, where I included a picture of the episode of SpongeBob where everything was chrome. Yeah, it's just, (laughs) we like, the shininess and like sterility of chrome is just very tied up with like, this is what the future looks like. Um, And it pops up in a lot of things like, yeah, Apple products are more like spun aluminum nowadays, but like they would use chrome elements more so in the past. It just like, it feels futuristic. Yeah. So my grandfather actually is partly responsible for the popularity of chrome 
actually sort of after Streamline Modern, more so in the 50s, he was a model maker for Sears. So the company would send blueprints over to him and then he would make a model with his hands and that would then be cast and fabricated and produced in mass. And oftentimes they would send him a blueprint without any color specifications because it was ultimately just gonna be used as a mold, the color didn't matter, but he would paint it chrome. And then executives would make the decision that the chrome he picked out looked good and then it would be produced by Sears in chrome. So he was sort of responsible for it. I've actually always liked chrome a bit. I've never been really committed to one color as being my favorite, but there was a period in college where I was really into aesthetics of the future. And I would say that chrome was my favorite color. <laughs> oh, chrome was my favorite color. <laughs> like, what is your favorite color? I, I think it might be navy blue. Oh, I'm wearing a lot of that right now. Wow. Yeah. That's know. not what I'd expect. Yeah, no, I think it's a good color. I don't know. Maybe it's like I use it too much in things. I will like often be putting together an outfit and I'll realize, oh, no, that's too much navy blue. Something here has to be like olive. Yeah, because yeah, it's like a color that just kind of escapes people, even though they wear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I've created many fantasy maps of the CTA in my head for expansion. And the CTA already has eight train lines with eight different colors. People yeah. oftentimes rack their brains trying to figure out like what's left. Gray and silver are popular options, but yeah. another one that people don't think about is navy. I would love to take the navy line. That would be great. Yeah. Oh, man. I think that would still be like, yeah, it'd be dark enough that it would, yeah, I think even with like, you have to think about people with poor color differentiation abilities or something like that. I think navy would still stand out. I think that'd be great. Because it's close to black, especially if it's a darker navy. Yeah. Like, I've thought about how Lakeshore Drive, which is a, it's functionally a highway. It runs along the lakeshore in Chicago. That urbanists really hate it because mm. if you're going along the bike trail on the lake or walking, it's this really large green space that's sort of ruined by this urban highway. Yeah. And people talk about removing it. I think it'd be really cool if there was a CTA line, like a cut and cover subway <laughs> along <laughs> what would then be like former Lakeshore Drive that yeah. was called the Navy Line. Ooh. I could go to Navy Pier. Yeah, that would, that would yeah. make a lot of sense. And yeah. it, w- it wouldn't touch the blue line, so it mm-hmm. wouldn't be less confusing. Yeah. Yeah, Lakeshore Drive is really interesting. It's, it's fun to drive on, like, when there's no traffic and the weather's nice and you're in, like, a car with the top down. But it, like, it gives as much as it takes to the city. Like, it is, though it was, like, it predates the, high, the um, like, interstate system, it functions not as an interstate, but just as a, like, large four-lane high-speed highway through the you know east edge of the city and it cleaves Lincoln Park, a great park, from the lake, an amazing <laughs> lake, and it just cuts this gash into it. So people always wanna redesign it, reimagine it. Um, I do hope something happens with it, even if it's just like a, a bus rapid transit lane or something, like there's gotta be, we have to be able to think of something beyond uh, what it currently looks like. Yeah. Um, Fun fact, the only time I've ever been in a car, I think, no, actually, I've been in one since, but my first time ever being in a car where it had, like, a hood that, a convertible. A convertible, yes. See, I don't know anything about cars, but (laughs) the first time I was ever in a convertible was with a prominent politician's wife. (laughs) (laughs) She, like, like, offered to drive me home, and I was like, sure. And then I didn't realize it was a convertible, but we were on Lakeshore Drive in this really fun car. It was a good memory. Um, oh yeah, and on Chrome, uh, 
I own a chrome trash can. It just really spoke to me when I saw it online. It's like perfectly cylindrical and chrome. I keep it clean with like a water white vinegar solution. And it's just, I don't know, when it's very shiny, I like it a lot. It's like a, it's a dirty thing. It's a trash can. But when you just cover it, envelop it in chrome, it's just so pretty. With hardware selections, as we call it in like construction interior design, people will sometimes think that they want chrome because they want something like shiny, very close to silver. But I think what people often end up being happier with is polished nickel, which is still has that luster, but it has like a warm tone underneath it from the nickel that you do not have in the chrome. And people, I think, are always just going to be more drawn to that. Because as I said, like chrome does have this very sterile, like medical instrument kind of feel to it that I know people don't really want in their home sometimes. As a material, chrome can be a bit delicate in a way, like it it can become less shiny over time. One of the ways that you can get it is through powder coating. I know this because I've done a lot of powder coating as part of a metalworking practice. Um, And one of the most popular powder coating colors from prismatic patterns is super chrome. And it looks great, but you have to actually then coat it with like a clear coat. It's complex. I never actually quite got it right. I was able to get like most other powder coating colors right, but the process for, for coating with powder coating chrome is quite difficult. So one other thing I do want to bring up on just like Streamline Modern being futuristic is there are two trains that fit perfectly inside of the Streamline Modern aesthetic. One is the New York Central Hudson locomotive. The other is the Mercury train. I think they're kind of related. They're like from the same company or something, but they both look so cool. Like these are on our Pinterest board, but they have this like single headlight. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it looks like something you'd see from, um, who's who's the director of Penn's Labyrinth? I don't know, something, I feel like he'd like those trains. I can maybe see that, yeah. I was thinking of the uh, 2000s animated movie Robots with Robin Williams. Okay, before we started (laughs) this, before we started this episode, I told you there was a bad movie. Mm -hmm. I watched, because every episode I seem to be watching, I seem to be mentioning some bad movie I've watched, but I watched Robots this week. (laughs) <laughs> and I felt like the futuristic robots within robots were streamlined modern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's like the rich, fancy robots. Yeah, and they kind of look cov- like that. They're covered in chrome is yeah. one thing. <laughs> I think they, they make jokes about chrome. I don't know. There's a lot of bad, like, robot. There's <laughs> a lot of dirty puns. humor in that movie. Yeah, no, it's very crass. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> with Miss Fanny or whatever her name is. Yeah. I wonder if they changed that in England. But, yeah, that movie does try and capture that. But... One good character who is in this style is uh, Big Wheel, I think is his name, or Big... How do you remember these names? I I had the game as a child. I don't know. (laughs) Are you talking about, like, the the owner of the factory? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Like, the owner, the reclusive owner, yeah. I forget who voices him. Yeah. But, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I just can't seem to watch any movies of, of any merit. um, (laughs) I'm not even a film nerd, but, yeah, man, these are fucking trash. (laughs) Yeah, but, okay, so these two trains, the Mercury and the New York Central Hudson, I forget which of the two, but Elon Musk shared one of them on Twitter, Mm -hmm. and he's famously anti-transit. You know, he owns a private automobile company. He has everything to gain from U.S. public transit being underfunded and not easy to use. But he shared one of these trains, which is the only time I can think of that he's ever been pro-train, on his like Twitter or now X, but he yeah. shared it on Twitter. 
it was just in like a plural way where he just was in his like boyish aesthetic where he yeah. just likes things that look futuristic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that does say something though about Streamline Modern that Elon Musk, who's whole aesthetic is just trying to be futuristic, still found these trains to be new and exciting 100 years after they were built. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you do have to give the Tesla credit for it. It, is, it does have one of the lowest drag coefficients of like cars you could buy today by not being like a super svelte sports car. Um, a lot of that comes from the fact that it has a flat bottom to it. So that really reduces like drag basically because it just has a battery down there. But that's kind of true of any electrical car. Yeah. Oh, uh, interwar modernist interiors. This, I think, I really draw a lot of inspiration from. I've been more of like a, I think in my personal furniture purchasing, it's been a lot of like strict mid-century modern, um, Scandinavian, Mad Men kind of period of stuff, post-war. But a really great interior designer of this period, who we've included a lot of the photos of this on the Pinterest, you can also just look him up, is Jean-Michel Frank. So he was a French-Jewish interior designer. What's cool about him is that he didn't like come from this German tradition of Bauhaus. He didn't really come from any architectural tradition. He was a pure furniture and interior designer. There's this great quote um, by this historian uh, where she says, Frank didn't like machine age chrome, plastic, or mass production. And he wrote little and never theorized. So he doesn't fit into the dogmatic modernist pantheon with Le Corbusier and Walter Gropius. Nor did Frank ever let loose with Art Deco chevrons and nymph forms. If you look at his stuff, it's very clean lines. It's things that are often called, this word kind of weirds me out, but sumptuous materials, like very nice, luxurious things, but also unexpected materials. The objects had a relationship to their origins, which you don't really see in our globalized world today. But back then, you know, people had like ivory from elephants in their houses. They had like ostrich feather dresses. Like there were just these really wild relationships the objects in your home had to different corners of the globe, but not in like a globalized way where there'd be all these individual parts that were sourced from every corner of every country. Instead, it was like, oh, this piece of lapis lazuli is from Afghanistan and that's that. Mm -hmm. Um, That reminds me, I like talking about luxury materials, but there's this famous Bauhaus teapot designed by Marianne Brandt. And it's like very geometrically simple. It's based around just like a perfect sphere cut in half with some rectangular forms. But the materials itself, it was made out of uh, like beautiful silver. Like it's not made of like chrome steel. It's actually out of silver. And then anything like a heat sensitive part of it, the handle and then where you lift the little top of the lid to the teapot is made of ebony wood. So I just find this stuff to be great when it's like simple and well done, but just like still luxurious. Yeah. Yeah. There's only one complete set of it known. Man, I'm pretty sure I've seen it. I could have sworn I saw this at the... um, In a museum? Yeah. In, what's the one? The Smart Museum? Yeah. At Chicago. Silver gets melted down a lot, particularly as, you know, silverware because people aren't really interested in polishing their silver. Even though it's like, silver does have antibacterial properties, it's, it makes sense to eat with. Yeah. But yeah, people oftentimes, there's less, like if you have antique silverware, you're gonna get more money melting them down than you would trying to resell it without melting it down, mm-hmm. yeah. which is sad. But on Jean-Michel Frank, one thing I learned, 
he is distantly related to Anne Frank, which is kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. No, in terms of like, I don't know, just I guess European Jews in that area. There was a, there was a lot of us. <laughs> like there was a lot of yeah. European Jews there. It's just crazy that these two like different figures from this period. Yeah, he was very in demand in his time. He was, by all accounts, a pretty, like, eccentric um, and interesting character, very emotionally volatile in his, like, professional and romantic lives. And he, he died pretty tragically by suicide. It was kind of like the world was closing in around him with the war coming and him being a gay Jewish kind of like... What country was he living in when he died? He died in New York, strangely. Oh. There's this theory that he was going to... He had spent some time in, like, Argentina... And then in New York, the story they say about him now is that he was, like, trying to hunt down old clients and trying to, like, get some money or some commissions. But, yeah. That's wild. Like, pre-internet, people would physically hunt down people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. I think if someone was determined enough, they could make a great, like, tragic biopic about like, his character. Like They should, because his work is really nice. Mm -hmm. he's, he's appreciated now. Like, I mean, he's not a huge name, but he has a well-filled-out Wikipedia page. And when his original pieces show up, they are bought for, you know, large sums by celebrities yeah. and appreciators. It's like, I don't know, like, it can, his pieces would fit in a modern home, and they'd fit in an antique home. They just capture imagination. Yeah. I do like his work. I have a harder time sort of getting thrilled about interior designer images of homes just because it's so much harder to recreate. Yeah. Like you can see people recreating a building. Yeah. I feel like something about that's more realistic. I get more excited about the interwar modernist examples of architecture on the outside mm -hmm. just because I feel like we can do that. But recreating one of his interiors, all the objects you have to source, it just seems like exhausting and unimaginable to be able to pull that off. Mm -hmm. Furniture is so much more fleeting than, like, architecture. Like, architecture, you can, yeah, you can, if you have an amazing historical building, you can tuck point it correctly and, like, power wash it carefully and redo these, like, metal flashings. You can really, like, do it right and kind of get it back to its original state. But, I mean, interior stuff is much more like clothes. Like, with anything textile, like, you're fighting against time and moths and <laughs> decay um, and people actually using it and sitting on it. It's, yeah, interiors feel more like the world of clothes than they do feel like the world of architecture and, like, civil engineering and construction. Um, yeah. I do think that designed objects have a certain permanence, though, because they're going to continue to be a physical collection for people. Mm -hmm. As our collections become increasingly digital, clothing, the objects in your home that have some function, mm -hmm. those you're going to continue to have to have so this will have resonance still in people's mm -hmm. everyday yeah. lives. Like the fancy teapot I was talking about, like you can buy a replica of them. Like people still... Yeah, even the people who are like chronically inside and online all the time, half of them drink tea. They still need yeah. teapots. Uh -huh. That's um, on the podcast Nymphed Alumni. They were talking about how clothes is one of the few physical collections that people still do have. Like unless you're a vinyl collector, you're not collecting music. You know, people don't collect like film, media, books, any of that anymore, but you still have to collect clothes. So it feels like there's more focus on it or there's more yeah. attention to it. Um, but yeah, it's the teapot you can get for 8,990 euros. 
It sucks when people do judge you for like a physical collection that you're not prepared to be judged. Because, <laughs> for example, I'm a librarian. And one time I went on a date. This was during lockdowns. Mm -hmm. All the dates kind of had to be like in people's houses. Restaurants mm -hmm. weren't open. So he came over and he judged my bookshelf. Even though I tried explaining it multiple times. Like I work for a library. I check out the books I want to read. All of these books were gifted to me. They're not my own choosing. Yeah. But he judged me so hard that he kind of left prematurely and then ghosted me. <laughs> but I kept trying to explain to him that this physical collection is not representative of me or my taste. But He's walking out the room. And you're just like, no, come back. This is not, I don't read that much John Grisham. <laughs> no. What even was on my bookshelf? I'm I don't trying to think what could be so bad. I got, I got gifted like a book on hypnosis by one of my sisters. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't have an interest in hypnosis. It's just what she gave me. I witnessed a, hip, a hypnotist last weekend. We had one at our um, rugby banquet. It was insane. It's like truly. I don't know why the human brain has this pathway in it that you can just like hijack and just access someone's like I don't know deep control center. It was actually kind of creepy to watch. I was kind of happy I had like a beer or two in me because like I don't know. I think I would have been pretty like apprehensive around it, but I was more game for it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is entertainment and hypnotists. He was very clear when he was like telling us how hypnosis works. Uh, he was like, you're not gonna admit any deep dark secrets, you're not going to embarrass yourself. That's not true, the guys totally embarrass themselves, but they didn't admit any deep dark secrets. Yeah. Um, I lived near the largest hypnosis center in the Midwest. It's an Avondale fun fact. Really? Yeah. I mean, people like say it works for stuff like um, sports sometimes, like sports uh, psychologists will use it if you're like, I don't know, psyching yourself out of your free throw or something. Uh, and then also quitting smoking. People yeah. do that as well. I'm trying to think anything else on Jean-Michel Frank. An interior that definitely looks like one of his interiors and kind of kicked off my whole interest in this period is one of the Thorn miniature rooms. So these are like dollhouse-esque reconstructions of interiors from different points in history, and these are all in the basement of the Art Institute of Chicago. So these were made by this wealthy socialite and this team of craftsmen she had under her, where she wanted to make like a visual encyclopedia of different interior styles. Uh, they split them up by like American, European, there's like a Japanese one, a Chinese one. It's mostly stuff from like late medieval into like seven, like 17, 1800s, really, really focused, it seems mostly in the 17, 1800s, but since these were built in the 30s, they did do one contemporary example. And so it's called like Los Angeles Hall of the, in the contemporary style, you know, 1930s. And it's, it's got that kind of clean line furniture. Um, it's got this very like rectilinear coffee table, but it has these beautiful like green drapes and it has traditional crown molding and baseboard. And I think wainscoting too, no, just baseboard. But I think this really captures like that that point in between. Yeah, I like the Thorn miniature rooms a lot. When I was a kid, my mom told me that there were literally little people that lived inside the Thorn miniature rooms, and I was very credulous as a child, mm -hmm. and I still am as an adult. Like <laughs> I believe in ghosts, aliens, demons, mm -hmm. everything pretty much besides astrology. Yeah. But I went through the Thorn miniature rooms thinking I would see like little people, yeah, little borrowers, like behind the yeah. corners and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this is, um, oh, it's like holiday times right now that when we're recording this. It actually is Hanukkah right now, too. Happy Hanukkah to our listeners. Yeah, there's a menorah behind me. There is. Um, but uh, during the holiday season, they dress up a few of the Thorn Miniature rooms in, like, Christmas stuff, and it's really cute. 
But this is the one room that they put a little menorah in. And it's a really beautiful terracotta, or not terracotta, it's just a ceramic menorah by the ceramicist Otto Natzler, who was of this era. But I tried to find more about this menorah because it's just very pretty. It's in, it's in a museum, I believe, in New York. But then they have this tiny little, like, replica of it. It's really crazy. I don't know if it was... I don't know if it was made back in the original run of the Thorn Miniature Rooms or if this is like a recent recreation because I am sure that it does take a lot of work, just like <laughs> architectural restoration for large projects. I imagine there is a team at the Art Institute who has to maintain and clean and service the miniature rooms, which must be really interesting. Oh, that's a very nice menorah. Yeah, isn't it pretty? Wait, is it the little one or the larger one it's modeled after? That's the big one. I that's think. the big that's one? That's the real one, yeah. Oh. Uh, no. Pretty cool, though. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have a menorah at your house? So I do own a menorah. I think they're really interesting because you can go a lot of ways with it. You can go very traditional. Very traditional is like four candles on each side and then the, um, the servant candle or the shamash, as it's called. Why do the they center. call it the servant candle? Because it lights the other candles. Oh. Um, and that's something they always kind of explain to us as a kid. Like, it is the leader and the servant. Um, which I think is interesting. Mine is very simple and brass. I, I don't think they should be too nice because they're always going to get covered in wax anyway. We had some, we had a few when we were kids. One of them was like Noah's Ark. And so it had a different animal as each of the candle holders. And so like the it, candle was shoved in the animal's mouth? It, <laughs> in its head, like directly on its forehead. Yeah. I remember there was like a sheep, a lion, a tiger. <laughs> um, for, so for our office, we have this very like cheap plastic electric menorah here, but we have such like high end finishes in our you know luxury interiors office. I wanted to buy the like three hundred dollar Jonathan Adler Dachshund menorah, which is a white porcelain dachshund that has on its head the shamash candle and then eight candles behind it. I just think that it's like I think it's funny. I think it's cute. I think it'd be a good yeah. fit for the office. It's like white porcelain and everything in our office we keep pretty grayscale or white. Um, I feel like Dachshunds as a dog are like streamlined modern. Yeah, I feel like something it's very about aerodynamic. Yeah. yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> greyhounds, I think a greyhound would also be a streamlined modern dog. Yeah. But yeah. But we need to talk about Bauhaus more. We keep going oh, yeah. back to streamlined modern. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the Bauhaus, I'm just very drawn to it. I liked its kind of ethos. Uh, it, it had a pretty like I think result, results-oriented ethos. They wanted more housing. They wanted to bring craftsmanship and light luxury like to everyone, to the masses, to growing cities. Um, I think they were very focused on like dignity and that good design should belong to all. So I like that. The arts and crafts movement was like that a little bit. William Morris, the founder of the arts and crafts movement, had like socialist ideas where he thought that every living person deserved beauty in their homes. Yeah, and so Chicago is like a cool city for Bauhaus stuff because we got two great emigres from this movement. Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, the architect, who wasn't Jewish or anything and actually was from pretty good means. Um, so he didn't have to you know, flee Germany immediately when the Nazis started to rise power, but he saw the writing on the wall and came to Chicago. So he started to run the architecture program at um, IIT, or Illinois Tech, Illinois Institute of Technology. 
So he was given, this was a very small school. At the time, it was just the Armour Institute of Technology. It was like two buildings. And then they started, <laughs> in a kind of bad way, they would have professors buy up dilapidated land around the campus and then sell it back to the university stealthily in order to amass like huge plots of land that they later were able to turn into a, like a master plan with Mies van der Rohe at the helm. And so he built these beautiful glass and steel buildings. And in my opinion, these slightly less beautiful brick and glass buildings as well. But it's a very like historic campus. I find it pretty. I find it especially pretty now that there's actually trees more so on the campus, which would not have been there as much when he originally built things out. The trees were apparently a donation of an alumni who went there in the 60s, came back in the 80s, saw that there were still like no trees on the campus and then paid for the planting of them. Um, so now they're like 40 years old, they're getting mature. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. There's good tree coverage. The crown jewel of like Ludwig Mies van der Rohe's buildings on campus is SR Crown Hall, which is glass and steel. Like the bottom third of these very tall windows is frosted glass, and the upper part is transparent glass. And speaking of the trees, the, the whole building is flanked by a ring of trees. And so when you're in there, because of the frosted glass, you can't see the like cars driving around you on all sides but you can see the like leaves of the trees above you. And apparently this was very on purpose. Like the building was built like with knowledge of the trees can around Can you hear it. the cars though? You can hear the cars a bit. And especially because the original glass would have been single pane yeah. as well. And it's just like, it's State Street next to it. Cars are gonna go 30 or 35 more likely miles an hour around you. But when you are surrounded by like the hubbub of like the building, cause they put like, the first main floor of it is actually used as studio space by students. So there's a good like kind of hum of people in there. It is a very beautiful space to be in. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I personally am not as much of a fan of Mies van der Rohe. He has some buildings that are in downtown Chicago, the federal buildings, mm -hmm. where there's the courthouse for the Northern District of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So they do like federal trials there, which I know because I did jury duty, um, as I mentioned as a on a previous episode for the trial of Eddie Hicks, but there are these buildings in the middle of downtown and they kind of disrupt the flow. I don't feel like they match what's around them. Mm -hmm. But my main qualm is that there are these two really old proto skyscrapers, the Century and Consumers Building. Mm -hmm. They were built in the interwar period and they are slated to be demolished because the federal government earmarked funds um, because of Dick Durbin, one of the two senators from Illinois, specifically to get these two buildings demolished, not to build anything there, not to improve it, but just to get rid of them. The justification for it is because they say that it's a security threat to the courthouses, even though these aren't even like really that big of buildings. And if they are that concerned about security, these courthouses should not be in the middle <laughs> of downtown. Yeah. Because they're flanked on all sides by tall buildings. It's really yeah. just sort of arbitrary. Yeah, it's so like, yeah, they're imagining this like Jason Bourne situation where there's a sniper in these buildings. Yeah, they say they like, don't want like that. people shooting into their offices. Yeah, and it's like, all right, you take away those two skyscrapers, like there's going to be another skyscraper just behind it, you know, that also yeah. has an equally clear shot into the courthouse. It's dumb, like not to be like a nihilist about it, but like... I don't know, have a little bit of trust in the city that... <laughs> and one of the things that's been suggested that they can do, which is very reasonable, is just brick up the windows. Which you couldn't do if there was like a new glass skyscraper there. Yeah. Like, what would they even do with a new building if they were like, okay, we kind of have no 
windows on yeah. one side. <laughs> yeah. like, do well, they even know what to do with that? That actually, that actually does happen sometimes. You will have like, if you look at some sides of like water tower place, there are like totally windowless sides to it. What's the exterior though? It can't be brick. Well, or is it? Water tower place is like clad and marble in some areas. Oh, okay. Um, but you can have whole faces of buildings with no like ventilation or anything. You just make up for it in other ways, on other sides of the building. But yeah, no, it's dumb that we're gonna like lose these pretty cherished buildings, I would it, say. It's but they're not rough. guaranteed to happen. I think yeah. they could be saved potentially. Mm-hmm. No. Um, oh, and the other emigre from the Bauhaus who came to Chicago was Laszlo uh, Moholy-Naj. That's my best guess at pronunciation. You have great um, pronunciation. I'm trying out here. <laughs> Hungarian is tricky. I make, I make no promises. But yeah, he represented more of the visual arts side. So yeah, Laszlo Moholy-Naj started the Institute of Design in Chicago which is actually later folded underneath the umbrella of IIT. So they kind of come back together again after the passing of both of those, those modernist figures. Institute of Design, I actually kind of wanted to go there after my undergrad. I always thought it'd be cool to get a degree in design. Did I really have a big plan as to what that was gonna mean in my career or anything? No, but I just thought it would be cool. They, it's a very intensive program. Um, if you don't have an undergraduate experience in design, they will do like a one year pressure cooker class that is apparently just hell on earth where you just learn everything about design and then roll right into your two-year design I, degree. I wouldn't mind being a designer, but I feel like that discipline is sort of self-eating where <laughs> they think about one thing for too long and then they start having dumb ideas because they're trying to be different. Yeah, that's, I forget where this quote was from, um, but it's like design has an amazing capability to change the world, but instead they just keep on trying to make prettier chairs than each other. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's just like there is just like a design navel gazing where design is supposed to be about like choosing the right questions to solve problems like really thinking outside the box taking a step back looking holistically at things and de- determining the best you know efficient yet beautiful solutions but I, it, there's times that just doesn't happen you just get complete like I always love to read the online magazine Dezine D-E-Z-E-E-N and it's like interesting architecture getting built and then short interviews with architects and designers, like, you know, interesting furniture collections. But you'll just get very dumb, like, senior thesis design things of, like, this designer created a gun that freezes her tears and shoots them at you. It's like, oh, wow, I wonder what that is. Is that a real article? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that, like, I, I think I'm going to lightly accuse of navel-gazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the problem with architecture is that for the general public, they expect that the main goal of an architect is to create beauty in society, where they view their profession as being about efficiency for maximizing space with minimal labor costs and minimal material use. And they find elegance in that. Mm-hmm. But for, it's like sort of just one big math problem. Yeah. And you see this a bit in Streamline Modern because Streamline Modern sort of emerged from Art Deco. They're very closely related, they do look alike. But Streamline Modern was sort of in response to the Great Depression and financial Mm -hmm. difficulties, like labor costs sort of getting a bit higher, but then also material costs getting lower due to manufacturing. Like glass blocks had been around a very long time Mm -hmm. before Streamline Modern, several decades. But they became popular in this time period because they became a lot cheaper. Yeah. 
Yeah, and glass blocks like solve a lot of problems. They're very insulating, um, they're strong, they're cheap. They don't require specialized labor to install. And also the fact that they're often bigger than glass, than like regular bricks means that it's all overall gonna be easier and cheaper for that labor to install. The predecessor to glass blocks actually was like plate glass. So this is what they came up with where they just wanted those same kind of characteristics of they wanted to let light through, but still have privacy and insulation. You can see little bits of them. There was some blog I saw of someone who would try to track down remaining plate glass in Chicago. It was typically like four inches by four inches and it was cast like in a glass foundry. And they'd often have interesting designs on them kind of to capture light, but also be a visual thing. And I actually own a piece of plate glass from a demolished Frank Lloyd Wright building that I had seen a piece of it on Etsy and my friend bought for me. It was a really nice gift. How much um, do you think that was? 40 bucks. Oh, cheaper than I would have thought. Yeah, you think Frank Lloyd, like, right. But it was such a large building and it probably had eight, like thousands upon thousands of pieces of these little four by four squares that, yeah. I know some guy must have sweeped up a lot of them. But also, how do you authenticate that it's an actual Frank Lloyd Wright piece of glass? I wondered about that too. And I guess it would be a lot of work to replicate one of these. Yeah. Um, the the company was Luxfer, L-U-X-F-E-R. Um, yeah. Oh, I guess we talk about Frank Lloyd Wright a bit too. He's kind of independent of this whole thing. Um, and that's why he's so beloved as an architect. He hopped around from styles wildly. You know, early he was just a guy like any other architect building what people wanted, Victorian homes, but he would take a little more inspiration from the surrounding environment. Then he reached his prairie style inspired by the horizontality of the American Midwest. And then he had, yeah, all these like other interesting periods that there, you'd see bits that overlap with, you know, conventional rectilinear modernism, like in falling water, but he was always kind of doing his own thing. I do like Frank Lloyd Wright's style. He has some really beautiful homes. Something about it makes me feel like it's contained within its own world, mm -hmm. sort of like, who directed the Royal Tenenbaums? Wes Anderson. I don't know. Just something when I see like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, I think about Wes Anderson. And it's kind of like, it, it's not. It's part of the world we live in. But <laughs> yeah. I just mm -hmm. think about it being so contained. Yeah. They, I mean, some of them will have large-ish windows for their time period, but they'll also have stained glass. It's not really meant to look out of. You know, it is a very inward-looking places. Yeah. Yeah, because that's sort of like the appeal of single family homes is that you get to build a very lush home life mm -hmm. and the domestic life is the real selling point. Mm -hmm. Because in terms of like the amount of space you would get, the exterior of the building, those things would be of improved quality if you lived in a multifamily home. Mm -hmm. But just like, I don't know, the control you have over your domestic space and then it just being your family, people find that appealing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite Frank Lloyd Wright building? It might be the Johnson Wax building out in Wisconsin. It was built for, yeah, like Johnson & Johnson. And it's, it's very strange. It has this main floor of a workspace that was like early open office planning, um, no cubicles. It's got these concrete supports in the shape of mushrooms. Then it has this like continually lit ceiling, so it feels like you're in this strange, like, forest, basically. Um, I also love the Ennis House in Michigan, uh, which was, or outside Detroit, I believe, 
which was done in this very, like, he would make these, pre these precast concrete blocks that had a pattern on them, and he would just stack those. And I find that house very beautiful. It's, it's kind of when he was drawing inspiration from Aztec forms as well. Yeah. Um, my favorite one is, I think, pronounced the... I said the Delizin. wrong name for the Ennis House. Ennis House is in L.A. I'm thinking of a different house in Detroit. I think my favorite, I don't actually know if this is pronounced at all, uh, the Taliesin West House. Taliesin, yeah. Taliesin. Mm -hmm. Wait, did you say that already? No, I didn't say Taliesin. No. Okay, uh -uh. sorry. But yeah, the Taliesin West House is in Arizona. I think I just like the color. It's like this very, like... It's like a strong red, but it's like an earthy, like clay red, but that's used throughout the entire structure. Mm -hmm. And I re just really like the color. And then also it does have some sort of like, I would say Native American inspired mm -hmm. aesthetics. I don't know yeah. exactly, but I just like how it looks. Mm -hmm. I've never been a stand, so I haven't read into it too much, but yeah. aesthetically it's my favorite building of his. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright, he's like the Empire State Building in that way, where he also has the most like beloved buildings in America. And they do feel so like, whole and American because they're inspired by the landscape. Um, so the house I was thinking of when I said Ennis House was the Dorothy H. Turkle House, which is less known versus his other ones. It just has this like squareness to it, more so than That doesn't look like something he would design. Yeah, this was, um, I forget what his name for this period was. In the Usonian. <laughs> he called it Usonian, which is yeah. such like a fun mid-century term. Yeah, he... When he was on this style, he was making a lot of small, single-story, single-family dwellings. I think it was part of his fascination with the industrial process where he wanted to make like something approaching kind of prefab. But yeah, it's a beautiful building. It's been recently restored. I would love to go there someday. Yeah. Yeah, and then so this period of aesthetics is super wrapped up in the actual world events at the time. Like? Like the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this term for the interwar period that I learned in AP European history called the Age of Anxiety. And I don't really see this used outside of like a history context, even though it is a good way to think about the interwar period because people were grappling with the horrors of the Great War. There were also all of these scientific discoveries in like particle physics and theoretical physics that were kind of freaking people out. Mm -hmm. People were turning to religion in higher numbers than we realized today there was actually a bit of lapse in faith and then a return to it. Like C.S. Lewis is an example where he turned to Christianity and then wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. But yeah, this period, I think, wasn't, you know, the best. It, it was good that people started to build and there was progress in society. There were new skyscrapers constructed. There were new subways constructed before World War II happened. But it was still very tentative. People kind of were aware that it was fragile and another world war could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and in Europe particularly, it's interesting with modernism because it was when, like, fascists came to power in different um, countries, like Germany, for example, basically modernism and modern thinking, modern art was all seen as degenerate, cosmopolitan, and, like, not fitting the character of the country and not, because a lot of these fascist movements kind of like appealed to a general like specific national character, often a more agrarian character as well. And so there was a skepticism towards these things that were coming out of the internationalist cities. But eventually like, as you can see in like later Nazi design and like architecture, they started to take these modernist forms where they originally like in their graphic style, they started off with the very like 
they call it like the Nazi font, but it's like that Gothic style script font. Um, Is and that, that why we don't use it anymore? Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's do a podcast about that font. I forget the exact name of it, but yeah. But eventually, the Nazis changed to more things looking more like a like Futura, for example. That's the font that used to be used in IKEA catalogs. Yeah, and then they changed. When I look at like a history of fonts, the sort of Gothic fonts are so pretty. Mm-hmm. I wish we would use those again. Yeah, Fraktur is the name of it. So it's when it started, it was actually a very like it looks very ornate and flourishy to us now. But when it originated in its period, it was the origin of the fracture typeface is in like the 16th century. So it was very stripped down and modern for its time. This is like the 1500s. Um, but then the Nazis saw it as like an original German uniting heritage um, thing. People are all behind anything for nationalism. Yeah. But no, like aesthetics is important to like building these kind of like nationalist movements. Like there's always like these fascist governments would often have like aesthetic edicts that they would pass down on what things should look like. I always talk about how like Jews are very overrepresented in modernist architecture as opposed to other like earlier forms or traditionalist architecture. And it's because like we tend to fare better fare better in like I don't know, the vanguard in pushing architecture forward as opposed to the looking backwards. Because when countries start to look backwards towards Greek columns and traditional forms, things then go badly for the Jews immediately after. <laughs> like, it's like the earliest symbol. And so people made a big concern about this with um, Trump actually like had some declarations about the style of like federal courthouses and how things should be built because they're, Pretty recently has been this example of a courthouse that was just done in the like neoclassical style, but in St. You know, Louis, but, right? Yeah, uh-huh. and so they they held up that example it's like this is what things should be. We shouldn't have these like glass and steel modernist things. Like when people see a U.S. government building, they should see something in the style of what was built in Washington D.C. originally. And it was saying that like this is what the people want, and their implication was that like there is this cabal of cosmopolitan. Um, like architects, you know, who all have what they want. And this is opposed to what, you know, the average American wants. Which yeah. kind of fits into the whole, like, kind of like I think, Trumpian, yeah. like... To be fair, I mean, have you ever seen the building that... Sorry, have you ever seen the courthouse that Vanderbilt replaced? Yeah. The original courthouse of Chicago? Yeah. It's really pretty. It is beautiful, yeah. Apparently it was, like, it did... People say it did ha- have to go. Like, it was not amazingly built. It was incredibly drafty. But, no, I've actually seen a replica of that in Minecraft as well. Wow. Um, I somehow stumbled upon this guy who has built, like, the most accurate Chicago replica in Minecraft. And so what he's done is he's done... The whole city. No. Wouldn't that, um, that would be cool? That'd be too much work. He's done everything physically inside the loop. And when I say the loop, I mean the actual, like, loop of train tracks. Yeah. Um, and so he's done everything inside of that. And then off to the Can side... Can you go inside the buildings? No. Uh, you can't go inside the buildings as cool yeah. as that would be. I forget what scale it's to as well. But he also, off to the side, um, recreated some demolished buildings. And one of them is, yeah, the old federal courthouse. I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link to the, yeah. the Minecraft file. I mean, I use Minecraft like a little bit in high school, and it's not for me. Yeah. I oh man, do I yeah. do I want to admit this? I was into Minecraft pretty early. Actually, I was like, I played it in like alpha, 
in beta back then. Um, it's wild what it's turned into. I don't know. I feel like an old man whenever I boot it up and they've like changed stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that is one IP that will never stop giving. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the modern Lego. Like there's something in there that just like, for I think the like elementary school boys' minds just instantly grapples it, you know, instantly gets it. Yeah. Oh, so one person we do need to talk about is Adolf Luce. So I became aware of Adolf Luce through the Cultural Tutor. Uh, the Cultural Tutor is one of those faceless right-wing Twitter accounts where he sort of rails against the decline of beauty in Western culture and credits minimalism for stripping down things to its bare essentials and everything being ugly now. And Adolf Luce is one of those people where if you look at his buildings from like 1922, You'll look at it and you'll think it's from the 60s. It looks sort of uncannily yeah. ahead of its time. But his buildings do definitely fit within intermodernism because yeah. they'll have the simplicity of a modern building, but then the windows are just like what you'd see on any other Standard 1920s square, building. no awnings, no like detailing. It's just yeah. crazy. He's like one of the earliest modernists. And it's so strange to see like, if you just look at the images for him, it'll show his interiors, which look so stark and modern. And then you'll see the photos of him and he's dressed, you know, this is like him as a young man in the 1880s. So like he's in a tailcoat with like a the mustache. vest and the stand collar. Like he makes like Ludwig van der Rohe look, look makes Mies van der Rohe look um, like so young in comparison time-wise. Yeah, I mean, some of his buildings, if you showed them to me and said van der Rohe made them, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't question it in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Um, it's uh, it's nice that some of his interiors, some of them have been recreated. I guess one of his buildings in Pilsen, not the Chicago neighborhood, but the Czech city, they've redone. And it's, yeah, it, like, oh, man, I'm loving these, like, they have, like, Turkish rugs, which I think are so great. And I those are, like, considered a very traditional classic thing, but I think that they look great in, like, modern environments as well. Yeah. God, I really love his stuff, honestly. I mean, overall, within intermodernism, I do like Streamline Modern, kind of like Bauhaus. It's not really my, yeah, it's not really my cup of tea as much, but there's something about the little details in loose works that I really like. Because with designer clothing, the devil's oftentimes in the details. Yeah. There'll be like some random seam or some random zipper that's just so sleek. And his buildings kind of feel like that, where there's just like a little detail or two yeah. that you notice where you can tell it's not like anything you've seen before. Yeah. And it does look kind of nice. Mm -hmm. I love, he uses a lot of burl wood. This is something that also showed up in um, Jean-Michel Frank's pieces, but it's a very like busy looking wood design. And that has come back recently. It had gone very out because it was a little grandma-y basically in its style. Something but, about it looks like tortoiseshell. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it, it, it gets used with traditional forms sometimes, but I think it really shines when it is in rectilinear forms. It just kind of lets, it, if there's so much busyness in the, in the d pattern, I think you should counter it by doing simplicity in the form yeah. that it takes. Yeah. Do you have a favorite wood? <laughs> do I have a favorite wood? I do like teak. That gets, that's like the lightest wood. And it gets very wrapped into like um, Scandinavian modern stuff. But I think it's so clean and nice. I have a teak shirt that I've never shown you that you'd really like. I'll pull up a picture mm -hmm. sometime to show you, not right now. 
But I had to re-sand it, and then I had to apply teak oil on it. Ooh. Teak wood and teak oil are meant to be used together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was one of the most... Overall, I try to be very minimal with all of my antiques. I'll maybe use Restore Finish, which can be used mm-hmm. to cover up scratches. It's like a very thin lacquer that is considered by like antiques experts to be acceptable because it's a very minor change, but it like leaves the original finish and it just makes it look better. Mm-hmm. I'll use that. Usually I'll wax the wood. I won't do anything like sand it down, but I had to do it for that chair. Oh, wow. But yeah, teak mm-hmm. oil works pretty well. The only thing I, I had to sort of do was like, it kind of had to be dried outside, but then you'd have to like, it would, you'd have to worry about like stuff getting blown on it. It was, yeah. I had to, I don't have like a garage. I don't yeah. drive anyway, but yeah, it, Working on that project was fun. No, that's that sounds so labor intensive. But I like that you do have a very like less is more thing with your restoration approach. Like that's yeah, a very I mean, conservator young people, thing. Young yeah. people are dumb when it comes <laughs> to like what they do with old furniture where they yeah. want to paint it. Mm-hmm. You're gonna find a like a dresser from the alley and paint it gray. That's not yeah. what. That's not how this works. Uh-huh. You just destroyed all value. No one's gonna want it in the future. Well, then someone will discover it, and they will, like, use paint thinner to, like, remove the paint, and then they'll, like, you know, rediscover it, yeah. I think. Yeah. And who knows, maybe even that that layer of shitty paint is going to protect it from dings and scratches, you know, and then it can be removed later by someone who's going to appreciate its true form better. Yeah, yeah, but the, I mean, the thing is, unless you have, like, a very high-end antique, otherwise, like, if you do, if you remove the finish... Any value that maybe was yeah. there, like the hundred dollars you maybe could have made, is gone. Yeah, no, that is true. I um, I don't know. I'm afraid to get into antiquing. I feel like I'll spend a lot of money and time on it. I just have like IKEA furniture right now because I'm very transitory. I'm just renting, but my dream is to you know buy a condo in a pre-war, either like three flat, six flat, or ideally. Like an elevator, high-rise building from the twenties. I, I could hook you up if you want to ever live in the Marina Towers. I know someone. <laughs> I, that's the thing. Like as much as I love, like yeah, post-war, mid-century modernism. I don't know Marina Towers. So to the listener, this, these are the corn cob buildings designed by um, Bertrand Goldberg, and so they're very distinctive on the Chicago Riverwalk. And you are in a great location, and it is next to Tortoise Supper Club, one of my favorite restaurants. It's in this complex over there, but I don't know. Those like piece of pie sliced rooms seem very hard to decorate, and I don't know all electric appliances too. But that's probably better for you because gas ranges are killing us, I guess. Um, yeah, I'd rather live with an electric stove. Yeah. My house being from 1893, obviously, I have a, yeah. I obviously have a gas stove. Uh-huh. Um, fun fact: if I use two appliances at once, power goes off in half of my house. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like an old <laughs> yeah. Breaker box, yeah. And if, yeah, you probably have the old screw-in fuses. I've never had to um, flip the switch myself. The mm-hmm. landlord will do that for oh, me. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it sucks not having an electric stove. I, I do worry about the air quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing I love about pre-war buildings is their locations. Mid-century high-rises in Chicago, I always say they give, like, the illusion of density, like, because they're tall and they have lots of units, so that's density, Right. But they're built on these huge pedestals that have like a multi-story garage inside them. Sometimes, you know, luckily the garages will be underground, but sometimes they just build these big pedestals. And that just kind of kills the like 
ground floor experience when you walk out of your building. And these, these buildings are often so wide that like it feels like it takes forever just to walk around your building. I used to live at this mid-century high-rise in Hyde Park and just like getting, it felt like it took so long mentally to get from my unit just out and around my building, just to get clear of my building. I feel like it took like 10 minutes. I know it didn't, but yeah. yeah. Versus like pre-war buildings, you just walk out your front door and you're next to a you know bustling commercial stretch, hopefully, or something. Yeah, if you like live in a 50-story building and you have a dog, just the act of going in the elevator, getting down, it probably takes several minutes. Yeah, that's the thing about high-rise living. I was in a, a pre-war high-rise in Lakeview visiting a friend of a friend, and what was very interesting is they had like a little you know lobby as you walk in, but there was no doorman. So I came into this first initial lobby, which just has the mailboxes, and I was waiting there for a bit, and there was a security camera, and then like a maintenance man appeared appeared out of a corner. I was like, "Can I?" He appealed, He came out from behind a hidden door, actually. <laughs> it's like, "Hi, can I help you?" And so, I don't really like doormen. Is one thing. It's just like it's another person to say hi to. I feel like I have so much going on in my mind when I'm leaving the house. I don't really want to interact with anyone until I get outside, and then I do want to interact with people. But I think that sounds like a very like 1920s rich person thing, where they're like, "Ah, oh, yes, the help should be, you know." not seen at all, but if needed, they shall just appear out of a hidden panel somewhere. Yeah. I was once inside of a mansion on Prairie Avenue, which at one point was one of the wealthiest streets in Chicago. Yeah. It's like River North and Lincoln Park before mm-hmm. the money was up north. It used to be more south. But I was in this building where it's on like the Chicago landmarks list, I think. Mm-hmm. It was the first building in the city period to use steel as part of the construction, something like that. Uh, I'm probably a little bit off with that. But anyways, I was in this house and like half the house was for the owners, the other half was technically for servants. Although now, you know, someone lives in there without servants. Although I could, I mean, that place was huge. I was like, yeah, like if someone was in your house, you would have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> like there was a ballroom at the top floor. There was like, yeah, it was big. Ooh, did it have a vaulted ceiling in the ballroom? Did it have like a barrel ceiling, like a rounded? What I remember seeing was mold. Like we went up there, <laughs> or there's water damage. Like we went up there and the owner was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was there. Like he was showing me the ballroom because I was a guest. And yeah. He was like, uh, he, you know, he was just giving me a tour of the place, but we went up there just for me, and then he saw there was water damage. I wonder how long that would have gone <laughs> if I wasn't there that day. So I was able to walk through um, 5000 South Woodlawn Ave with a past company, and this was like, it's listed on here as a 10-bedroom, 8-bath. I think when it was built, it was like a two-family home, but one of the things that stood out to me about this building... It's been like subdivided and subdivided over time as the neighborhood got worse and worse. Um, oh, they don't even have the best photo on here, but it had this barrel vaulted ballroom on the third floor, which is just so wild to me. Like, Does it still have it? Yeah, uh-huh. it was falling apart and holes in the barrel had been cut as an attempt to add forced air heating later. Holes in the barrel? Wait, there's actual barrels no, in no, the No, 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 barrel's just the shape of it. It's just okay. like a hemispherical <laughs> thing, yeah. Um, God, I, I, I do have photos of this, luckily. I have better photos than this Redfin listing does. But, yeah. I think, I like modernism, but I, of course, like, bitch and moan about cars and car-centric stuff, so interwar modernism is where I get to have my cake and eat it, too. Forward-thinking aesthetics, but also trains 
and like bustling streets. Yeah, um, there are really cool looking streamlined Mandarin cars, I must say. Yeah, no, they are they yeah. are slick. We have one of those on the Pinterest board. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that this period, as we mentioned in the beginning, is in this sweet spot where there was technical capability to do anything, but there was more minimalism for a variety of factors, both aesthetic and economic. I do think people can reference this. This is sort of a forgotten period to some degree. Like, for example, I was new to this. Before this episode, I didn't know what Streamline Modern was. I didn't know what Workbund was. I knew what Bauhaus was, but didn't really vibe with it. But there's so much here that could be referenced by people other than architects, I think, including the work of Jean-Michel Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I think this period should be looked at specifically because the mid-century revival we've had in America and I guess like Europe too as well has really just looked on the purely like mid-century 50s, 60s period. And so, you know, people want to make their office look like Don Draper's office from Mad Men, uh, which I still think does look cool. But I look back to this earlier kind of like more primitive version of it, I think had a lot of like rough charm to it that was lost in later periods. Like the sleekness of Scandinavian design, it has its appeal, but I kind of like the almost like two elemental of shapes that are used in Bauhaus stuff. It's just so simple that I really like it. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed discussing this this week. Be sure to check out our Pinterest board just to give yourself an idea of what we were referencing this week. And also be sure to follow us on Instagram at silent.generation. We post when we have new episodes. Thank you for listening this week, and we hope you have a good one. Thanks for listening. Bye.